Welcome here. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you, uh, welcome to Tri-City Church, and uh, glad you can join us. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Hosea today, uh, chapter 2. Uh, but before we get there, I would like to start with a word of prayer. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how you felt this week, but uh, as I thought through the things that, that kind of occurred, uh, it struck me as one of those weeks where the, uh, the brokenness of our world and the the injustice that's going on in our world was um, writ large, where, where we couldn't escape it. Uh, Monday, uh, I think it was Monday, uh, Hurricane Ian kind of crashed into the, the east coast of the United States, causing untold damage and some deaths. Uh, Tuesday, hitting closer to home, uh, the, the Kistner family, uh, you know Isaiah Kistner, if, if you know his story, they found out that uh, there really wasn't much more that could be done medically speaking uh, for, the, for the cancer that he has in his brain. Uh, Friday was a day to remember uh, the, the wrongs of, uh, of the past as a nation, and Saturday there were more and more protests uh, about the unjust, oppressive regime in Iran that is, that is beating down its people, and that there are many brothers and sisters in Christ that are there already who had a difficult time living as uh, believers, and yet now it's even, even more difficult. And so it um, it was one of those weeks where you probably, I found myself thinking, man, what, what is going on? And, and we, as, as believers, sometimes come to those places, lots of times, where we say, God, what, what exactly are you doing, and, and why does it seem that you're doing nothing? And it, uh, of course, made me think of the book of Habakkuk, because that's exactly what uh, Habakkuk says. So I just want to read uh, the first few verses of the book of Habakkuk. He says this, O Lord... How long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Uh, but then the rest of the book is God answering Habakkuk's questions and, and concerns and confusion. And I'll just read the next verse. Uh, where God responds to him. God says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And he goes on to explain all the things that he is already doing that Habakkuk has no idea about. And so I think it's good that we remember uh, that our God is not ignorant of what's going on in our world, that his hands are off the wheel, uh, that he is at work and we can, we can pray. We need to pray but we can have confidence that uh, he will continue to accomplish his goals and bring help and bring comfort. So I want to begin with a word of prayer to that end, and then we'll, we'll get into the word. Uh, Lord God, we, we do need a reminder of who you are and of the fact that you, you are, in fact, in charge of everything that's going on in our world. You're aware of all of it. Uh, Lord, you do hear our prayers, but in fact, you've been working ahead of them. Lord, the truth of the matter is that you, you are involved in every, every situation uh, on the world stage or in our lives that, that is unjust, that, that's wrong, where there's people suffering. And Lord, uh, your call in our lives is to trust you in those things and to recognize that, that you are still at work and you are accomplishing your goals. And so Lord, I pray for us that we would be encouraged by that, but also we would be uh, compelled to continue to pray. We do pray for these things, Lord. We pray again for Isaiah Kistner. We pray for the family. We pray, Lord, that you would bring healing into his life, healing into his body, and that you'd be comfort for John and Cassia. 
We do pray, Lord, for you to move in a powerful way against those uh, governments that are um, abusing their people, that are limiting their freedoms. We pray in particular where the gospel is not allowed to be, to be preached uh, clearly and, and loudly. Lord, we pray that you, would, that you would bring freedom to those places. But God, we also pray that your people all over the world would know that you are still at work and that you are at work even in the midst of, of oppression and justice. And sometimes, Lord, you're at work in ways that we just we can't even fathom and we won't know until decades go by. And so please, Lord, encourage us. Help us to remember in, in the small and large things in our lives that you are a God who is faithful. You are a God who is present. And Lord, I pray even now as we turn our attention to, uh, to your word and to the, the book of Hosea, God, that uh, we would be confident that uh, you are working in our lives and that uh, we would better understand how it is that you work, how it is that you bring about a greater sense of faithfulness in us. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Hosea. Uh, it's great to have the Bible in front of you, but if, if you don't have one with you, we, were, we are going to have the uh, verses up on the screen. Uh, last week, we're just sort of the beginning of the book. So last week, uh, we ended on a very high note. We made it through the end of chapter one. Um, if you were with us, you, you hopefully uh, were encouraged by the fact that we were able to trace uh, the, the plan of God from the book of Hosea all the way forward to the cross of Jesus and beyond, and in that, uh, make clear what, what God intends for the world, for his people. Uh, we hopefully better appreciated the restoration that we can experience through Jesus Christ. We Hopefully we're able to see with greater clarity what exactly God is doing here in the book of Hosea, that the wondrous promises that are being revealed about him for his people, even in the, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. And just as a reminder, uh, there's, there's a bunch of different levels, a bunch of layers that are going on in this book, in this story. Uh, we have Hosea the prophet and Gomer his wife. We have God and his people, the Israelites, and also we have God and us. I mean, we're not in the story, but it's pointing forward to our relationship with God. Every, every human being's relationship with God, that's what it's speaking about. And in terms of the story being told, in the book of Hosea, we need to recognize that the story is not over yet. Uh, these are real people. They're not just allegorical characters written there just to teach us something. They're real people, which means for real people, change is often inconsistent and often short-lived. And so while there was great hope for Gomer and great hope for Israel, the truth of the matter is that the seeds of unfaithfulness in their hearts, they ran very, very deep. And so it wasn't long before those seeds of sin and unfaithfulness, they, they, they bore fruit again, dark, wretched fruit again in, in their lives. Now, you would, you would think that they would have been grateful. By they, I mean, I mean Gomer, Hosea's wife, and Israel, God's people. You would have thought that they would have been so thankful for the change. I mean, you would have thought that Gomer would have been happy to get away from her old life. She, would, she was a prostitute when Hosea married her, and so she had experienced all of, the, all of the things that come along with that life, all the mistreatment, all of the social shame, all the spiritual darkness. And, and when Hosea came and proposed to her and married her, her life would have changed dramatically for, for the good. I mean, practically speaking, she went from probably the rougher side of town to a better neighborhood, a better home. She all of a sudden had new status in the community, more security, more stability, and most of all, she had the love and provision and protection of a, of a genuine loving husband. So you would think she would never look back, but in fact, she did look back. 
just like Lot's wife. She, she, in fact, did more than look back. She ventured back into those rough areas of town and she found some of her old lovers again. And so I want to give you just a little snapshot of where we're going this morning. We're going to look at her continued unfaithfulness. So here's verse 5 where it says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So all the layers of this story are contained in this passage. We're going to look at Gomer's adultery, Israel's idolatry, and and our own sin. And we know already from last week that God has a master plan to restore all of his unfaithful people to himself through the cross of Jesus, but what follows are some of the nuts and bolts of that plan, like how, how this restoration actually happens in the life of each person, each, each one of God's people. And so it's a fascinating passage because we get a clear insight into the very heart of God as he responds with passion to the unfaithfulness of his people. And we're going to see there's basically two main responses that God has to our sin, to our unfaithfulness. And those are going to be our two points for this morning. And the first one is this, that God is angry at our unfaithfulness. God God is angry. I'm going to read uh, verses 2 to 5 just to kind of get us going. And as I said, it'll be up on the screen as well. So here is is God speaking about his people, Israel. He says this, Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So I think we can say pretty clearly that God is not happy. I mean, this is some very strong language. Again, some some maybe shocking language. Lots of people struggle with uh, this aspect of God's character, the anger of God. Uh, Those outside the church and some inside the church would say, look, uh, Jesus, I'm down with Jesus. I mean, Jesus seems like such a great guy. I mean, he's a great teacher, so wise, but also so gentle, I mean, he's got like kids in his lap. He's healing everyone. I love, I love Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament, I, man, I gotta say, I can't, I can't understand him. I can't accept him. I mean, how, how can we when there's a God so filled with anger and jealousy and judgment? And usually they point to the different instances in the Old Testament where we see God judging people, individuals, sometimes cities, sometimes whole people groups. And they point to what seems like very harsh consequences for sin. And if they knew about this passage, they might point here. And they, and they might say, I mean, look, look at this harsh judgment of God. Look at this language. And to be sure it is, I mean, it's strong language. We need to spend some time. We are going to spend some time unpacking it, understanding it correctly. But before we do that, let's put all of this in the context of unfaithfulness in marriage. Because that is the, the literal like immediate context, the marriage between uh, Hosea and Gomer and Gomer's unfaithfulness. Just to kind of get your mind into where we are with their actual lives, it probably, it probably would have been four years since they got married. They've had three kids since then. 
they've, they've grown a life together to some extent, even though it's a strange situation. Uh, Hosea has done his best to love Gomer, to build a life with her, but she has not been able to give up her past. She's been lured back into a life of unfaithfulness, and it wasn't a one-time thing. This is multiple men, multiple affairs. And so while lots of people have trouble with the idea of an angry God, not that many people are confused or, or think it's a problem when there's a husband or wife who's, whose spouse is cheating on them and they become upset. We understand that. I've had the opportunity to, to work with couples in this situation or spouses in this situation. I remember one, one situation where a wife was having multiple affairs with men in the neighborhood. And the wives of those men would come to the, to the husband and get angry at him and say, keep your wife away from our husbands as if he was in control of the situation, as if he wasn't as angry and devastated as they were. I think we can all understand the anger there. In fact, if, if we heard about a spouse who wasn't angry in that kind of a situation, like who wasn't weeping or, or yelling at times or, or upset at that level of betrayal, we would probably wonder about whether they actually loved their spouse in the first place. So lots of people uh, have trouble accepting the idea of an angry God or a jealous God, but the truth is that anger and jealousy are just the flip side of genuine love. Okay, if you, if you genuinely love someone, if they say they love you, if you've entered into a committed relationship, if you've grown in that relationship and then they break it and go and give themselves to someone else, relationally, emotionally, physically, how, how could you not be angry? How could you not be jealous? This doesn't mean that you have license to be cruel or vindictive or controlling, but remember, God isn't just anybody. He, he's, he's the moral compass of the entire universe. Okay, he's not, he's not like Moose from the Archie comics. Remember Moose? Remember Big Lug? I don't know if anyone reads those anymore, but I remember he's a big guy and he would always just pummel all the guys who looked at his girlfriend, Midge, be like, and he'd just keep hitting them. And, and you'd be like, Moose, chill out, okay? Don't be so possessive. Don't be, get control, hold of yourself. That's, that's the wrong kind of jealousy. But that's not what we're talking about here in the Bible. Okay, God has emotions, but he doesn't get carried away by them. That's not what his anger and his jealousy is all about. His anger flows from his holiness and his righteousness. Okay, he... He was in a committed, covenantal relationship with the Israelites. They were his people. He was their God. There, there was a, it was a loving relationship. And, and in their rejection of him, in their idolatry, that is the cause for his anger. And he makes this very clear. He says it a few different times. Here's one example. Deuteronomy 32, 20 and 21. He says, for they, the Israelites, they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So you might say, okay, I get it. All right, just like a spouse has a right to be angry when their spouse cheats on them, God has a right to be angry times like a bazillion. Fair enough, but, but this language is still very harsh language. I mean, how, how do we make sense of what God is actually saying here in his response? And I would say to you, we make sense of it by, by seeing it as part of the passion that he has to restore us to himself in love. So, there's two responses from God. The first we've seen already, there's anger, clearly anger from God at the unfaithfulness of his people. But the second thing that we're going to see is that um, God pursues us in love. That's the other side of his response. We're going to spend longer here looking at how he pursues us 
in love because God doesn't just get angry at our unfaithfulness. He actively, graciously, intentionally intervenes in our lives with the goal of rekindling a sense of love, genuine love for himself in us. And as a sidebar uh, to husbands in particular, this is what all good husbands do, just so you know. Uh, to, to genuinely love someone means that we are going to pursue them in love. This is obvious at the beginning of relationships. Okay, if you're going to date someone, you're going to pursue them to some extent. Okay, guys, just so you know, it's probably not going to happen unless you, they're not going to come to you for the most part, okay? You need to reach out in love, but that's what happens for, on both sides in a relationship. At the beginning, you, you reach out. You, you're intentionally trying to get to know the person, trying to pursue them. That, that makes sense, but it's less obvious once you actually get married. Some uh, men and some women, even, they think that relationships are like mold. You know, once it's there, it's just going to grow, okay? No matter what you do with it, it's just going to grow. You have to put any effort into it, but that's, that's not how it works, okay? All deep, loving relationships are the result of people pursuing each other, not just when it's easy and fun, but also when it's difficult. In fact, the mark of genuine love is that we do what we can to help each other to get back on the right track. Like when things are going wrong, that, that's the test of love. If you really care for someone, you're going, to, you're going to reach out. You're going to pursue them. You're going to do something to help them to, to identify the sin in their lives and to turn back to the Lord. And that's what God does for us. He pursues us in our sin, and he does it in a few different ways, some of them very strong, but some of them very gentle. And so we're going to look at the next section of our text, and we're going to see some very strong ways that God uh, pursues us when we are in our sin. And as I read it, there's going to be, again, some, some strong language. Uh, I, would, I would ask you to look for those um, verses or where it says of what God will do. There's a bunch of times where he says, I will do this, I will do this, and see what, what it's saying that he will do. And so I'm going to read the beginning of verse 6. And again, this is, this is God speaking uh, about Israel, his, his bride, in a sense, his wife. Here's verse 6. Therefore, he says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue, rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So there are a lot of things uh, that God says he will do there to Israel, and pretty much all of them seem very harsh. Uh, like the first passage that we read, right? There's some strong language there. What we need to understand is that these are all designed to help a wayward people see the destructive path they were on and turn back to the Lord and to right themselves, to, to then 
go in the right direction and grow in faith. So we're going to look at the, the different ways kind of under categories. Uh, there's four ways that God pursues us. And the first one is this, that God frustrates our sinful desires. He frustrates our sinful desires. Uh, look again at verse six and seven. We can see this. He says of Israel, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. So the picture we get there is that somehow God was preventing the Israelites from going to worship the other gods. Uh, you have to understand, one of, one of the things for the Israelites, one of the, the reasons that they were in stuff, such a bad position uh, spiritually is that they didn't really see their idolatry for what it was. If you were to ask them, like, who are you? They would say, we're, we're God's people. Yahweh, he's, a, he's our God. That's, that's who we are. But they thought nothing of when it was planting season, also going to the other temples, the, the Baals, as they called them, and worshiping there also. Because, I mean, they were agricultural gods, and they were planting. They wanted fertility. So what's just a little extra help, you know? I mean, why not cover all your bases? So they thought nothing of going and engaging in all sorts of sinful corruption so that maybe their crops would grow uh, a little more. It was a little extra assurance. So imagine how they would feel if this was what they were used to doing if all of a sudden, for some reason, they couldn't go and worship at those temples. It's a, God says he hedged up their way. Some, somehow, we don't know exactly how, but maybe, maybe they got sick. Maybe they got injured. Maybe the crops were planted, but they were unable to go and make offerings. And so the, the comfort, the assurance that they normally got from, from thinking this other God with whatever supernatural power he has was at work in their lives, now they couldn't do that. They'd be very frustrated. They would probably think to themselves like, oh, what, am I under the curse of God that I can't go and, and get the help that I need? But it wasn't the curse of God. It was the blessing of God. God was bringing opposition into their lives to help them to see their idolatry for what it really was. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I've, I've definitely experienced this kind of frustration in my life. In fact, God does this fairly often. He frustrates the things that, that the desires we have, the idolatry in our lives. And just remember, I, an idol isn't just a statue, right? It's anything that I functionally put above God in terms of my hope, my peace, my security which means there's a ton of idols in all of our lives. And there's lots of times where God frustrates our desires for those things to teach us something. For example, just hypothetical, think of the heartache, the frustration that would come in your home if the Wi-Fi was out for a weekend. <laughs> right? Like that would be, if you, especially if you have kids, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There would be all of the evil that is simmering under the surface would come out. Because people wouldn't be able to watch the things they want to watch. You wouldn't be able to work with the way you want to work. All, all of the things that you just find a little bit of comfort and joy in, they would be ex you would see it for what it is. Be so frustrated. Or think of how you feel when your holiday is ruined. I remember talking one time with uh, my neighbor, Christian family. I was talking with her. She, at the time, had uh, teenage kids. And they had planned a trip down to California. They were all going hard. So spring break was coming up. We're going to fly down to California, enjoy some time in the sun. When they got down there, I asked her how it was. She said, we all got so sick that we couldn't leave our hotel room. We were there. We could see the sun out through the window, but we couldn't go outside. And she said, we, we were so angry about it. We were so frustrated because in our minds and hearts, we're like, God, we've been, we've been working hard faithfully. We just wanted a vacation. We just wanted a break. We just wanted to get into the sun. Why couldn't we have that little bit of joy? 
But she said after a while, they, they realized, you know, that maybe this had taken up too big a place in their mind and their heart. And they actually kind of brought it before the Lord and they talked with each other and said, you know, I think this was a bit of an idol for us. She said even in just declaring that, they found a, a rich sense of peace that they didn't have before. That they learned something through it. And that, that's what these kind of moments are all about. That God reveals to us the, the, the influence of certain things in our lives that we don't, we don't see them for what they are. And just so we're clear, it's not that God wants us to be a frustrated people. He just wants us to genuinely be his people. To, be, to have hearts that are truly devoted to him because it's in him that we will find actual peace, actual lasting joy. So that's one of the things he does. He frustrates our, our sinful desires. But the other thing is, uh, he will sometimes withdraw his blessings. So take a look at verse 9 and 11 and 12. He says, uh, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. Verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth, that's her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. So again, this seems kind of harsh. I mean, to take back food and drink, to put an end to feasts or parties, to destroy vineyards and fig trees, you got to sort of think, why would, why would God do that? I mean, these aren't all sinful things. Some of these things just sustain life. How can this be example of love when it has the potential to cause such suffering? And the answer to that is something we, we, if you're a child of God, need to be very clear about, which is that God is willing to make his people suffer for a short amount of time so that we avoid eternal suffering. That, that's the pattern that we see in, the, in our lives and the lives of people throughout the Bible. That in bringing trials into our lives, he's very often revealing to us sometimes the destructive path that we're on. He's trying to get get our attention. That that's, that's one of the reasons, not always, but one of the reasons why there is suffering and trial, why he, when he withdraws his blessing, it's very often to teach us something about the state of our soul. And we see this a bunch of different times. Uh, one time where he, he says it directly, this is what I'm doing, is in the book of Amos. In Amos, similar situation, he's speaking about the unfaithfulness of his people, and he tells them, I'm bringing affliction into your lives so that you'll return to me, but you, you aren't returning to me. So look at verse 6 of Amos 4. He says to, to his people, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. You know what that means? There's no food, so their teeth are clean. Okay, it's not a good thing. It's not like a nice smile. He's saying he brought lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And he goes, all the verses that follow are all the things that God did in the lives of his people to wake them up so they'd return to him. He says, I, I took away the rain. I made your crops mildew. I sent locusts to eat your fruit. I gave you diseases and sickness. I sent your young men into battle. Your horses were stolen. You were attacked by enemy nations. And every time he says that, the last line is, but you did not return to me. You did not return to me. And after a while, if you, if you read through it, you start to think to yourself, man, how, how, how could you do this to your people, God? And and at some point, isn't the cure worse than the disease? Like if you're allowing all of this affliction to happen in the lives of your people, how is that at all hopeful? But then he gets to the final verse. Verse 12, where he, he sums up the whole kind of sequence by saying this. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, 
because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Which means Israel, people, prepare to stand before God. Prepare to give an account of your life. Prepare to be judged eternally for your sin and your unfaithfulness. What he's doing is reminding his, his people is, look, the consequences of sin far outweigh any suffering that you might endure on this earth. And so if you're experiencing affliction, if God is bringing challenges into your life, it's because he's concerned for your eternal soul. He's not as concerned if for a year or five years you have some discomfort. If, if that happens so that we might turn to him and find salvation, it's worth it. His concern is greater than ours for the, for the eternity before us. Again, it's not because he wants us to suffer, it's because he wants to wake us up. He wants us to see, perhaps, the destructive path that we are on. And for some of us, we have not wanted to recognize where our path is leading. And yet, because God loves us, he, he's not gonna keep blessing us. He's not gonna keep making it easier and easier. That's, that's only gonna make us have even greater tunnel vision and think everything's fine in our life. It's when things get harder that we begin to evaluate our lives. When we get on our knees. Now again, this doesn't mean in every situation this is what God is doing, but this is sometimes what he does. He pursues us in love in this way because he wants to ultimately save our souls. The third thing that God does, which is kind of tied into this, is that God exposes our sin. Uh, some of the most disturbing and confusing language in this passage has to do with exposing nakedness. Uh, let's look again. Verse 3, he says, Lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born. Uh, verses 9 and 10, he says, And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. So in the Bible, uh, nakedness and shame are associated with one another, and shame and sin are associated with one another. So what God is saying here essentially is, look, he is going to expose Israel's sin so that they feel the shame of it right now so that hopefully they will turn away from their sin and not have all of their sin exposed on the day of judgment. It's a similar dynamic. He wants to expose the sin that is there now so they have a chance to receive forgiveness and grace. And the reason he's doing this is because we don't often feel ashamed about the things that we should feel ashamed about that we are very often willingly blind and deaf to the shame in our lives. We, we just don't see our sin for what it is. And so God in love will very often expose those parts of our lives that we want to stay hidden. We, we don't want our sinful, dark parts of our lives to be exposed. In fact, a lot of us spend a lot of time ensuring that it's not exposed that no one actually knows what's going on in our hearts and our minds or when no one's watching. It feels horrible to have things exposed, right? No one, no one likes that. No one likes to, to feel that way, but very often it's the best thing for us because it's only when our sin is brought into the light that then we can experience the grace and love of God and that we can actually grow spiritually. Uh, for me, the, the times of real spiritual growth have often come after a time where either I've been convicted of sin and so I've confessed it, or other times when it's just been exposed, it's been brought to light. Uh, for Don and I in our marriage, we only really started to grow together in genuine intimacy when my sin, my sin of lust was exposed and we had to deal with it. 
And I can experience the grace and the forgiveness of my wife and of God. That's, that's when things really started to get good. And so what God does for us because he loves us is he, he uncovers that which we want to keep covered. And he does it because he wants for us to feel the shame of it, to be exposed and then run to him. Okay, the goal isn't just that we, we cover it all up again. So I point this out because it's here, but also because there may be some of us that are resisting this. In fact, I'm sure there are some of us, because I've done it also in my life, resisting this. Trying to, trying to keep things covered for as long as possible, but we're only hindering the good that God has for us. The other thing I want to point out is that we don't have to wait until our sin is exposed. In fact, it's better not to. We can be the ones with the help of the Spirit of God to go and examine our hearts and, and see what's there and bring it to light. See, there's sometimes when we know, like we know the sin that's in our hearts. We know we're covering stuff up, but there's other times because of, because of how steeped we are in sin, we don't even see it. We're, we're in a sense genuinely blind to our anger, to our pride, to whatever it is. And so we need God's help to expose it. But we can get his help. In fact, he, he invites us to do that. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you haven't done this in a while, is, is to get alone with God and to ask for his help to expose those areas of sin that you are blind to. And one uh, psalm that I would point you to is Psalm 139. So just find some time in prayer. Uh, so I'll just read a bit of one, Psalm 139. It's David's psalm. He says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. So David's basically saying, look God, you know me better than I know myself. So, so please, in light of that, reveal to me the things that are hidden that I can't even see. Expose them in my life, as horrible as, as it's gonna feel, and it will feel horrible. Because you're probably gonna have to have conversations with people in your lives, confess sin, confess to God, and that doesn't feel good in the moment, but the grace that comes after it is so enriching. It's life-giving. And this, this is what God wants for us. This is his love. He's been pursuing us in love. Okay, the last way, the fourth way that God uh, pursues us is, is through tenderness and grace. Okay, God shows us tenderness and grace, and we're going to see it here in the last two verses, verses 14 and 15, uh, which read this way. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So what we see here is that God's response to our unfaithfulness and sin, it, it's not only a hard response, it's also a soft response. Because love is both. Okay, the wayward heart uh, certainly needs to be confronted in sin, but it also needs to be shown tenderness and grace. And we see both sides of God throughout the Bible. Uh, if you think of the story of Elijah the prophet, uh, Elijah was the one who, who had a contest with the prophets of Baal. And he was up on the mountain and he was you know, praying that God would come down and, and God revealed himself in power and fire, fire from the sky putting to shame all of the prophets of Baal. I mean, it was an amazing display of God's strength, 
But then within a couple of chapters, uh, Elijah's in the wilderness by himself, desperately wanting the presence of God. And when God comes to speak to him, he doesn't speak to him in, in power, in the whirlwind or the earthquake or the fire. He comes and speaks to him in a whisper. He's, he's reminding Elijah that while there is great strength in God, there's also great tenderness. And Jesus, when Jesus speaks of our sin throughout his ministry, he, he speaks a lot about the, the anger of God, the strength of God, the, the eternal consequences that are coming. But he also talks about the forgiveness of God. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. See, God's anger is, is meant to get our attention, but it's his grace poured out through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross that actually draws us near to him because it's, it's gentle, it's tender. It, it's the voice of, of one who isn't placing any extra burden on us. That's, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel, that the burden of faithfulness that's on our shoulders as his people has taken off and put on the shoulders of Christ because he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And so now, when we take his righteousness on ourselves through faith, we believe he actually died for a sin, rose again. Now the faithfulness that we are to live, it's, it's joy, it's light because it's, the weight of our soul is not upon us. We get to live a life of obedience, thankful, grateful for all God has done. We draw near to him, not worried that, that we're gonna be pulled apart, that we're gonna fail. We just experience his love. That's, that's the tenderness that we hear about here, foreshadowed here in, in the book of Hosea. But you might be wondering, if, if you just look back at verse 14, it's interesting that even though it's speaking about the tenderness of God, look again, it says, therefore, therefore I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So it's kind of interesting. When I first read that, I was like, why, why wilderness? The wilderness is usually associated with discipline. Like it's not a nice place to be in the wilderness. If God wants to speak tenderly to us, why, why are we there? And I think the answer is because sometimes it's only in the wilderness that we will actually hear his still soft voice. If you look at the, the previous, uh, all the words we read, if you look at what Gomer was doing, like what Hosea's wife and what the Israelites were doing, uh, they were totally misunderstood the blessings in their life. Like there's a lot of times there where they're receiving flax and all these good things. They think it's from the other gods or from the other lovers. They think they, they're not hearing the voice of God and it's because there's so, much, there's so many other voices in their lives. And I think that's us. Okay, even if we are, we're committed followers of Christ, there's a lot of other noise in our lives. A lot of other things and people that are promising us uh, blessings and hope and joy, and it's difficult for us to actually hear the, the voice of the Spirit of God. And yet the wilderness is a place where we're cut off from all the other idols. The, the wilderness is a place where we experience the tangible provision of God. Like the wilderness that the Israelites were in, that was clearly what was happening. There was no food, only the food that God provided. There were no other idols. They, they, they could only hope in him. And for us, this happens a lot of the time when we're, we're brought into a situation where, I mean, we're, we're just so distraught, we're on our knees. And all the other things in our lives clearly are not providing an answer. 
and all we can do is, is hope and trust in God, but it's at that point sometimes where we actually hear him clearly. And so this is still the tenderness of God that he would do this. And, and the goal, the goal is that our hearts would be filled with love. Uh, once again, look at verse 15 again. It says, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So this was when the Israelites were saved by God, the Exodus story, through the Red Sea. Just imagine their hearts, how full of love they were for the Lord, for Yahweh, who, like, look what he just did, right? He took care of Pharaoh's army, miraculously saved them. I mean, they would have been exuberant with joy. I mean, that's like, like a marriage, a wedding day. So hopeful, so joyful, this pure, unadulterated love. That's, that's what God is trying to restore in us, to kindle within us again. And he does it by exposing the sin within our own hearts, the lies that we're believing, and also reminding us about his love and his grace. See, the truth of the matter is that he, he really does love us. We, we know he does because he gets really upset when we, when we go in another direction and because he pursues us with passion when we're going in the wrong direction and he wants to turn us back to him, not just because it's the right thing, but because it's the best thing for us. Like it's genuinely, worshiping him is where we will find all that we're looking for. So it's the greatest expression of love that he would do everything he can to draw us back to himself. So in light of this, I think we should apply this to our lives by, by seeking for this to happen, by not resisting it. There may be some of us here who aren't people of faith. And my hope is that you would, you would see the God of the Bible as he truly is, that he really loves you, that he's for you, that he's given his son for you, and that the way towards him is to, to recognize your sin, to admit it, and to accept the forgiveness that comes through Christ. But for those of us who know that already, we should be aware of the, the many ways in which we can, we can have our hearts uh, go after other lovers in a sense. The, the, the many things, big and small in our lives, that we look to for hope and joy which are going to disappoint us and which take us away from our one true love. And so we can pray. We can pray, Lord, would you, would you help us to be filled with the love for you because that's, that's our greatest joy and hope. So let me pray that for us uh, as we close. Lord God, it's... It's so helpful to see that the challenge of being a faithful people has always been a challenge. And that, Lord, our, our hearts have always been fickle, have always been filled with all manner of spiritual adultery, that we, we go after other things that seem to immediately give us what we want, whatever it is, uh, money, pleasure, entertainment. There's so many things that vie for our attention and, and there's so much noise in our world today that we very often go after those things and we don't even realize it. And yet here what we see is that you are passionate for us, that, that it grieves you when we go in the wrong direction, when we abandon you, when we are disobedient and your heart is one that is angry, but not just angry, you pursue us in love and we're so thankful for that. And so I pray that, that we would be a people that respond in faithfulness. Not, not that we carry the burden of being a perfect people, but that we recognize, Jesus, you've done that for us. And that because of that, we can walk faithfully in your grace and your power. 
And I pray in particular for those uh, people here who uh, have not yet made steps of faith. Uh, I pray that you would work in their hearts as well. Help them to see you for who you truly are and help them to know the peace and joy that can come through accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for you do love us. You have given everything for us. And I pray that we would have hearts that are, that are really full of love and joy and hope that comes only from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.